Shall I go for it? Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, welcome to the Drowned in Sound podcast number three, actually. Danielle Perry here, joined, of course, by founder Sean Adams. And today as well, Toby from Transgressive, Love Live and Rock Feedback as well. It's quite a CV, isn't it? Uh, I, I, I hope so. I mean, it's been a fun, fun ride so far. The reason why I've got you both together is because you've recently just both turned 15 for your various companies, haven't you? We thought it's a good time to go head-to-head and talk about what's been going on over the past 15 years in terms of online, um, labels, live, video, all sorts of things, and also music media in the future as well, something you're quite passionate to talk about, Sean. Yeah, definitely. I think I am a little bit older than 15, um, but I've basically spent half my life running Drown and Sound. Um, And Toby spent half his life, pretty much, running Rock Feedback. Yeah. And so I wanted to talk mostly about that but also we've both run labels we've both put gigs on but you do a hell of a lot you do 100 gigs a year which is a lot more than the one I've done in the last three years <laughs> um, and I think there's just there's lots of crossover and I think you might help me understand what the future might hold and I think I might understand a bit more about the last 15 years that I maybe wasn't as sober at than, than you were to understand what we missed over the last 15 years. Um, <laughs> so I have one, one question to kick off. Um, what was in the water in the year 2000? Why did we both end up starting sites? For me, I think it was MTV2 had quite a big influence. The death of the Melling Maker was quite a big, like, hang on, there's a big hole in my Wednesday afternoon in Tutor Group. And I think the fact that I had a modem and I could see the internet, but there was nothing on it I really wanted to read, um, made me think, well, how do I start one of these website things everyone else has got? Was that kind of for you? Was there, do you think there was something else apart from maybe at the drive-in and a few other bands that just had us stupidly excited that summer? That's a, it's, it's a really good question, actually, to try and look back at it. Because um, at the time when you start something, you don't necessarily know why you're doing it. It's just like a compulsion to, to commence. Um, I think looking back, it was probably dissatisfaction um, on a number of levels. Some of them sort of like personal, um, some of them like kind of outward looking to my interests. Um, I think as far as music media was going, I just felt underserved. I started reading, you know, music publications like The Enemy at quite a weirdly young age. You know, while all my friends are sort of reading, you know, Smash Hits and, you know, Just 17 and whatever is around, you know, I kind of picked up The Enemy at school and, you know, kind of got my hands all inky and started going to gigs when I was about 10 years old. The first show I saw when I, when I was 10 was Blur. That, that's rewind. You don't get your hands inky. When you're reading Melody Maker in maths class and pretending to do maths, you ended up smeared on your cheeks <laughs> when you were like putting your hands on your forehead trying to pretend you were like definitely paying attention to the maths it's lesson. It's so true, actually. And not reading Swell's writing, this like epic they, diatribe. They, they were such big publications. Yeah. Like they were 80 to 100 pages every week. I don't know how they put them together. And... And it's a bit of a lost art, that level of depth in a weird way. And But I noticed a transition in the sort of like kind of late 90s, um, you know, and as I was just sort of like kind of approaching adolescence, I was, you know, starting to notice a kind of dip in the, the quality of music that's going on. You know, like after that 1997, 1998, like, you know, amazing era, you know, the death of Britpop and the transition records, which were really exciting. You know, the, all these artists becoming either prog bands or trying to find something else other than, you know, Rule Britannia and whatever had preceded it. You know, come 2000, there was real, there's really a dearth of popular mainstream British pop culture that excited me. Um but apart what the, from Blur, apart from Blur, obviously. Yeah. But no, but there were also a lot of other <laughs> things. There were there was like a US underbelly developing. You know, there was Elliot Smith and Pavement, and there's all this stuff. And um, but then also equally on the on you know going back to the mainstream stuff, it was new metal. And 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 then what good artists were coming out of the UK were getting panned by the music press that mm. I previously loved. So I was like, 
okay, this won't do. I need to assert my opinion to an unsuspecting public and round up other people, talk about what I love, and that was it, really. It was just a compilation of work that was chiefly my own at the beginning and then enlisting other people, and we just put all these kind of, in retrospect, very overly enthusiastic, uh, you know, kind of like diatribes on the internet, and that was rock feedback, really, and that was uh, September... The 15th, I remember it was a Friday night. I mm. dialed up via my modem and, you know, some people skin up, some people put a needle in their arm. I just heard that. <laughs> and every- get off the internet. Yeah. Mum, get off the phone. Exactly, yeah. It was literally that. You'd fight, you know, you'd fight your brother, your mum, your cat to, to get this precious internet connection mm. um, by this huge radiation-emitting box in the corner of your living room. And that was my base for the next five years, really, obsessively writing and uploading articles. Do you ever remember, though, one of the things for me that at that time was I felt like as an Idlewild and Symposium fan, I was the butt of the jokes. And Idlewild were the first band I ever interviewed, mm. you know, when I was 14, before I had a website. Yeah. And can you imagine how hard it was? And you probably remember to get an interview with a, a popular band when you say, I've got a website. Except yeah. not only was I building towards a website, I didn't have one yet. I said, I'm going to have a website. And they were like, firstly, what, you're not doing a print magazine interview. Yeah. Who the hell are you? How old are you? Is your website funded? And I said, I told a porky pie, which is that it was funded, but they didn't need to know it was funded from my, you know, like kind of like milk rounds. Yeah. You know, like, <laughs> it was funded, yeah, by my, my, my dad's pocket money. You know, it literally was a, a kind of you know, a lot of, like, faking it till you make it, you know, and at times my dad, uh, who doesn't have any ties to music, he would make the phone calls to PRs on my behalf because mm. my voice hadn't broken and I was still at school, oh. so oh. it needed to sound like a man was calling mm. to get interview time or to get reviews from record labels for, for shows and things, and, you know, as as the website reputation grew, it got easier and easier, but I remember it was so hard to get interviews, it was so hard to get into gigs, um, so I had all the initial work was me paying for every CD that was reviewed, mm. me sort of like paying for every uh, gig ticket, until suddenly a critical mass built, really. There was there was definitely a point for me when, it's definitely around that time when I was sitting there going, I was doing an email fanzine for two years before Drowning Sound, and I used to have to print it out and send it to PR people for them to believe it really existed. Was that when you were in Weymouth? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. When I, was, oh, I grew up there, so that was putting gigs on, and I did started an email fanzine, which I guess Pop Bitch was probably the only other thing at the time that, that would have made sense. And that, I ended- That's a really good point, because like, I was... There weren't really many websites to your yeah. earlier point about music or even many websites mm. in retrospect. It was kind of amazing, actually. Um, there were just news groups. So you'd sign up to a mailing list with a band and then you could reply or whatever and it went to like the 100, 200, 300 subscribers to this mail group and you'd post reviews or pictures and it was a very sort of interactive, conversationally driven thing. And I guess the equivalent now is obviously social media, which we should definitely come on to mm-hmm. later on in terms of how that affected things subsequently. But... It's amazing that a website really became just like a kind of, as I say, it was a compilation of musings, really. Yeah. As you're, as a kind of um, sort of personal question on that, both of you said, you know, I thought I needed to stand up and get this point across and really get my voice heard. Where does that come from where, when you had that confidence to do that? Because not everyone could do that, could Youthful they? Youthful enthusiasm, belligerentness without... Ignorance. Yeah, ignorance. I mean, you know, I, I, I'm sure you do. I'm sure everyone here does. You look back at something when you start and you're like, oh my God, mm-hmm. I can't believe I wrote that. Oh, you know, I gave five stars to that. Oh, I criticised that. Like, you know, I used to send emails with like three paragraphs to Steve Lamack about Muse. <laughs> to kind of go, can you play them on the radio? Because like, at the time, he'd never played them. And I remember like he told me that, he reminded me of this when I first met him. He said, you're one of the only listeners to the show that used to send in emails like that. So they were kind of like <laughs> paying attention. Because I, like, I loved their first demo. I was like, I lucked out. I found Muse's demo when I went through a demo pile for the first time. It was like, it was a complete accident. Mm. And it was 
which is it's literally like the least cool thing in the world. But I thought they were going to be massive. And for the whole time, I thought I'm probably crazy. It was like, and you don't know for certain. And I, I was lucky that one of the first bands that I really loved, that I thought had the potential to do something, did. Mm. It could have been so much worse. I could have probably <laughs> picked King Adora and no one would know who I was. Hell, hell I picked King Adora. I, mean, I think you were the... I mu- didn't realise that. Yeah, yeah, I picked King Adora. You know what, actually, I picked both bands. Yeah. But, you know, there you go. Like, you, you win some, you lose some. The uh, I, I guess there was that just youthful... Like, you don't think... There's no one saying no, so... There was no real convention and no one had really tread that ground before. I think now, it's like I can imagine both of us being 15-year-olds running a Tumblr and it being pretty normal. Mm. But I think being a 15-year-old in the year 2000 doing it was a bit strange. I think the mechanics have changed, obviously, as well. Like, you know, there was an element of... I mean, obviously, coding's involved with everything, but there's so many automated... You know, this is really geeky now. Mm. CMSs that back websites. So, this you know, content you could, management system. Exactly. Thanks you could, for that. Yeah, there we go. You, could just, you can just fill out forms and like, oh, I put that word in bold and click buttons and it's like not dissimilar to using Word or something on your computer, but, you know, HTML, uh, which obviously still exists in various forms, but not as much, you know, you had to code it. So every page I wrote was coded, and like I'm the opposite of a coder or a geek. And mm. so my brother was fortunately, he is those things, so he used to help me, but every article I uploaded, I manually created. And um, so it's quite weird thinking back at that. That took so much time. Mm. Like, every page had to be constructed you know you had to like if you wanted to redesign the website you'd need to go back to every single page you'd ever (laughs) uploaded you know what i once did that actually like a few years into the site i was like right i'm changing the design this is terrible Mm. um and i re-edited every review i had done Mm. and everything that had been on the website and it took me it was supposed to be like a two-month exercise it took six months you had a good suntan that summer (laughs) i just yeah i'm never doing that again (laughs) what was the pivotal moment for both of you where you suddenly thought actually this is turning into really a trajectory where my career is now this was there a pivotal moment for either of you <laughs> I, th- I think probably both of us around the same time of like I don't know for me I was working four or five other jobs and I probably continue still to write to I was, and I was at school three or four so. other jobs I remember um, I remember like it was quite funny with uh, Sean and me because Rock Feedback started in September 2000. You kicked off in October, didn't mm. you? And I remember like a year in, like, I think we were both sort of a bit competitive back then. And we used to sort of keep tabs on each other and email each other like, <laughs> you actually email me go, I remember this now. It's funny you mentioned Steve Black. You go, how did you get that Steve Black interview? Yeah. And I remember going, I can't remember how I did I think I did what you did, which was just sort of badgered yeah. him until he just like said, I'll do this interview and get him out of my life. But you were um, in Glamorous High Wickham, so you were a bit closer <laughs> to popping on the train. That's a good point. Yeah. I was 45 minutes away. Oh, you're yeah. still competitive. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> it's true I did have that uh, geographic well, I, I remember us both chatting on Insta Messenger though and just like I don't think it was competitive I think it was healthy competition in a like I think if there'd been no one else doing it, I think we both would have felt a bit crazy. That's a really good point. I felt at the time really. I mean, that I alluded to it earlier. Like I felt personally quite um, sort of dissatisfied as well. That's the other thing. It wasn't just about music coverage and media. You know, at school I was genuinely like struggling to find anyone with the same taste in music and the same sort of cultural outlooks. And you know, everyone was like, you know, it's all the cliches of those kind of like sporting videos from the '90s and that you watch on MTV. You know, but everyone was like, you know, in the sports teams and all that sort of stuff and you know for any listeners that obviously can't see what I look like I'm the opposite of a sports guy Um, and you know so for me it was like okay I'm going to channel my alienation into hopefully a more constructive positive thing and so you know the beauty of that is that you meet like-minded outsiders and then everyone sort of like kind of comes together to form something greater than the sum of its parts so Mm. 
So the landscape was so different back then, wasn't it? If you think about how much music television we had, actually, how many videos you could see. I mean, I remember going around to people's houses just to watch M2 all night, and it was amazing, wasn't it? And so how things have changed to now, where everything is so different, isn't it? What, what's been the biggest hurdle for you both from then to now? Myself has probably been quite a big hurdle. <laughs> <laughs> but I can't really jump over myself unless I try and do one of those backflips like the guy from Jealous. But that's, that, that'd that's, be great. That's not something I'm going to do on air. <laughs> I've just done it. <laughs> it's happened. It's, happened. it's good. Uh, that'd be great. I, I guess one of the bigger hurdles was, I guess was trying to take it from like a hobby to a professional thing. I remember meeting Levi's, I think it was once, their ad guy. He was like, well, you've not got a million readers, so why should I care? And I was like, well, you're taking out the ads on the Fly magazine's gig listings, and I don't think the Fly has a million readers. Um, getting our first ad was quite a challenge because um, it meant that the, some of the costs of actually running it could be covered because it was costing quite a lot, and I was working jobs just to pay to keep the site going, which it seems quite stupid thinking about it. <laughs> um, considering now, if we'd waited three years, there would have been WordPress or there would have been another platform that we could have been on rather than finding a really kind-hearted web developer from the Radiohead Forum who ended up building the site to begin with. It was like, there was definitely a steep learning curve and then to try and take that to any step beyond. And I think actually both of us around the same time, mine was 2003, you were about 2004, we both started record companies. Mm -hmm. And the music industry, oddly, understood what we did by us being singles clubs, by us putting out albums. Like, that, that made sense. Like, that was how I got my first investment was... I'd put a band called The Koreans first single out and I wanted to write about them, but they had nothing out. So to me, it was like, well, how do I put a single out? And we sold 1,500 copies of the first release, which now would be a hell of a lot of singles. Hmm. Um, and then I, when I found the Kaisers, I tried to get investment. I was like, this band are going to be massive. They're the British Weezer and people are like, oh, I don't really get it. It's like, they're a bit like the Beach Boys and Super Fairy Animals and people started to get it and the first radio play was from Jonathan Ross, which sound, makes me sound like a complete idiot saying it, but it was like... I really believed in the band. I watched every A&R person in the UK walk out of their gig <laughs> and stood there thinking, what, what is everyone else not hearing that I am? And that came from, again, that like, I guess that sense of purpose of just like, I believe in this, someone else clearly clearly might. And it, again, it could I could have picked totally the wrong band and booked the wrong, uh, backed the wrong horse, but I think like, I guess around the same time there was block party and that was when Tim I think put his first single out yeah, before yeah. Transgressive started yeah and... so Tim who I worked with and started Transgressive with yeah like um, yeah it was it was a similar time yeah like 2003 uh, 2003 I met Tim at a club night I was throwing in London and that was the first spin off like two years into our feedback um you know, it, this, the very fortunate thing, actually, I should mention in terms of the timeline of this, is that 2000, there wasn't much around musically. Mm -hmm. There was just, you know, these, apart from Kid A in 2000, which is an incredible start of any century. Yeah. Um, and it's it, that album came out two weeks after I started Rock Feedback. Mm -hmm. And that gave me hope that, oh, yeah, we can go. We can go with this. Um, but um, two years into it, we started a club night. And that was like the first, to your point, spin-off. Thing. I didn't make much money from it at all because we wanted to always pay the bands and look after them and give them a good experience because that was another problem. In London, artists weren't getting looked after at their early shows. So I really yeah. wanted to make sure everyone got fed, everyone had drinks, everyone got paid enough for their petrol at the very least and hopefully more. And But what money was left over, you know, I pay, you know, hosting fees and stuff. Um, See, I remember putting gigs on back then and there wasn't money left over. <laughs> well, you know what? Like... <laughs> the, uh, I, put, I remember putting on um, Sona Farik and Biffy Clyro and Jet Plane Landing and bands like that, the Brixton Windmill. 
And um, yeah, there was through like three pounds to get in, and there was no money. Ah, you see, my, see, my gigs were five should, pounds. Yeah, exactly. That was that was my business problem. <laughs> that extra two yeah. quid goes yeah. a long way short. But no, no, it was like um, no, but like that was it. It was just you know, it kind of it. It was a useful thing. And the thing that was great about it is that I was able to bring all the writers down, all the artists I was writing about I could book. And we had a few lucky breaks, you know, like as that club night went on, it was called The Basement Club and it was held at the now defunct uh, Buffalo Bar in Islington, which our new office is kind of really close to, which is quite spooky. But basically, we'd write about a band, we'd book them, and invariably, a lot of them were quite successful, which is really fortunate. And that was the start of this amazing thing. And then The Strokes came out 2001, 2002. Then bang, there were all of these artists. And because we had a club night, because we had a website, we were like literally lost within it. Mm. And whereas before everyone was like, who the hell are you? You're not a print publication. Because we got all the first interviews, all the first shows, everyone was like, oh, wait a second, you have to do rock feedback first. And like, even though we didn't even and still don't have a huge readership because we're awful at audience development, um, you know, like what? What did happen was there's a real but the people that do read it <laughs> yeah the people that do read it <laughs> i.e the artist yeah. reading about other artists um it felt like a club and then um yeah and just to go back to the point about the record label thing it was at one of those club nights um that i met tim and i put one of block party's first shows and tim was selling their seven inch in the in the corner of the room and kelly said you guys should know each other and that was it transgressive started three weeks later over a, a, a beer i couldn't afford in a pub in holborn mm. um and that to me is a hopefully um, for anyone listening, like a kind of sign that if you go out there, do something you care about, things will happen. You know, but work hard, always contribute, always believe in what you do, and amazing stuff will happen. You can't plan sometimes. Yeah. Mm. It is all down to timing, I think, a little bit, isn't it? I think that's where your kind of passion and, and a sort of hobby turns into career, and then your brand is born almost kind of by accident sometimes, isn't it? With like two contributing factors that just enhance what you're doing as well. I used to do club nights in Birmingham, and I got. I booked down the Calvi really early on. Next week, she was on the cover of the the Observer, then nominate for the Mercury Prize. Like, it's amazing, brilliant this scene, and it went on from there. But things just gather pace, don't they? And you've got to be ready to kind of roll with it when they do. Mm. I think that's another sort of quite vital thing, isn't it? I agree. With also, that. when you're in a, a slightly smaller town as well, the things that do end up coming out, they end up being that slightly. Like I remember one of the first gigs I booked in Weymouth was Cooper Temple Claws. <laughs> and there was they were their first tour little band, but it was like I got to hang out with the band. I got to, I actually became quite a good friend to most of them. And I was still listening to their records thinking these people don't sound like human beings because they're making something far bigger than the sum of their parts. It was to me it was still awe inspiring, even though I met them and said they were human beings that burped and farted. It was like <laughs> they they still had that kind of otherworldly power. And I think not being in London was really important for quite a kind of at least the first four or five years of I agree with that I think I think London still had this mystical energy like you know I was a regional guy that admittedly was close to London but still very much outside of it and every time I travelled in it was my world away from school and all the crap in my day to day life and it was just exciting going to all these shows and being, you know, cheekily underage for the over 18 mm. gigs and going to club nights when I shouldn't have been and, you know, sort of like having my first sort of like kind of sneaky drinks when I shouldn't have been. And all of that contributed to that energy and excitement that uh, hopefully the website conveyed, you know. Um, it was definitely a moment in time, um, you know. Um, but I, I think, I don't think either of what we both do and what, like, you're going to a gig tonight and you seem just as excited about going to that gig as you would have been going to a gig 15 years ago it's like you're so, like the thrill of like you were telling me on the way in like you you just heard back from like the head of radio one really likes the band and that they might end up like doing really well and it's like that's the same enthusiasm of like loving something and believing in and i think there are lots of people that have that but i think knowing what some of the things we've learned over the years to try and transition that kind of enthusiasm and, and love almost like lust 
for the kind of music in that in that moment in time to try and think, well, actually, I can envision where this might go and try and work out how to help the band have that career and have those kind of foots on the step, which I think is... You were, you were saying just before we started about you have no patience, but you clearly have, like, the ability to kind of see what the steps are and, like, maybe you're not patient to wait for the, to get onto the first step, but you can see that it's going to... It's not just... Oh, yeah. Like, Foles didn't become the, like... Property Festival headlining next year band that they are. That took a long time, yeah. I mean, when we first started working with that band, like, you know, um, we had a long roadmap to that point you just mentioned. We knew the album was going to come out 18 months after we signed them. Um, I think now that's, like, kind of inconceivable for a lot of people, but that still remains our philosophy, which is good artists remain great. You just have to get them to a point where they can become even better and better, you know, until a point where it takes off, a, you know, and takes on a life of its own. And, you know, I, I think, you know, you've always got to have the long term in mind. You know, the moment is a wonderful thing. You can go to an amazing gig, you can read something incredible, you can listen to something awe-inspiring. However, you know, taking a step back and going, gosh, if you do this, what's that going to be like in 15 years? Is this good enough to be a classic, you know? Mm. And that's where we're setting the bar now. You know, we want to make classic records. We want to work with classic artists and, you know, and then occasionally have a frivolous momentary thing, you know. They're, they're, they can be equally valid in their own way. Danielle and I were chatting about some of the records that you have put out over the past few years. And the list is just kind of, it's, on paper, it looks like it could be three different labels. <laughs> and, like, I think when we were we were chatting about the Africa Express record, yeah. and both of us were like, this isn't something we'd have listened to unless you'd put it out. And that's quite a, like... That is amazingly flattering, and that to me is like exactly the goal with Transgressive. It's that um, we never want to repeat ourselves musically. We don't know where we're going to go next. And genre-wise, you know, Tim, me, Leela, Mike, everyone at the company, we're ingrained with a sense of complete, um, you know, sort of love of all music and all artists and all forms of art, really. And there is no... There's no sort of kind of... For, for a group of people that endeavour to be organised and to work really hard for their artists, you know, the only prerequisite is, is it excellent and special? Is it the best in its genre at the time? Mm. And that's it. We don't care what the genre is. You know, we're, we're not like... And sometimes that's created problems for us, you know, like some people pigeonhole us, but or in the early days they used to pigeonhole us. But now the benefit, having done this for over 10 years, is that people always feel they need to listen to our records because mm. they don't know what's going to come next. You know, is it going to be Africa Express? We've just signed our first classical artist, you know, and if someone said to me when we were putting out Young Knives records and Mystery Jets records and Lady Fuzz records, you're going to put out a classical record in 10 years, I would have been like, really? Cool. But you probably could imagine writing about it. And I think yeah, that, that's, that's one of the things point. with Jan and Sound, like people think, oh, well, why are you covering Carly Rae Jepsen and Girl Band on the same day? And it's like... They're relevant. It's the mm. same writer that wrote both pieces. There you it's go. Like, yeah, that's yeah. that's, a good that's point. what human beings are like. They have that diversity of taste. And I think there's there's a lot of other sites which I think are great, but they're very close to what they do and don't cover. Mm. And I actually think specialism is actually one of the things going forward that people are going to want more of. Mm -hmm. But actually what people really want is something to trust and surprise them because an algorithm can just serve you up the same thing over and over again. I, and it's really easy to fall into a silo mm. is basically the word that tech writers seem to like to use and just become that kind of... Because I'm, I'm guessing with a radio show you get sent, oh, this is what Absolute does, this is what the kind of music we think you cover and you're like, no, this is the music I like. Mm, everything's kind of branded really, especially commercial radio, of course. Oh, sorry about that. That's all right. Such a pro. <laughs> Tim, I'll be there soon. Yeah, um, yeah it's, it's funny actually because, of course, I've done like specialist shows on different stations and now I'm doing uh, one particular um, sort of specialist show. But it's really funny because you can kind of work within brands and you can still be specialist amongst that brand. 
but you can also sort of go off and make a playlist of your own accord. Like I've, I'm doing this like one that sort of I was just sat there the other night and just putting songs that remind me of autumn down. It goes from anything like old blues records like Janis Joplin and stuff like that to some old Coltrane and then something mental from the Mars Volta or something. But I can do that as well. But that I think is what the internet gives us, and I've had to really push myself to do that because I was a bit. I was a bit, I don't know, I was a bit like, I don't want to get involved. I don't want to tweet so much. I, don't, I didn't like the social media thing. I didn't like I had to do that. And now I'm realising 15 years in that it's essential. Like today it's essential for me to do that. It I'm, really is. I've, I had a member, one of the funniest days in the office was um, I, I was part of starting the Quietus and I tried to, to get Luke and John to use Twitter. <laughs> and there was definitely about 15 different occurrences of me being, look, I've set up a Twitter that automatically posts for you but it's a bit boring. You guys should probably editorialise it. And they're like, whoa, nice people posting about what they're going to the, getting on the train and being stuck in traffic. And uh, they had all these reasons why they didn't. And now, like, that's... Social media's become such a big bit of them. In fact, some of their, some of their editorial almost doesn't feel like it's built for social media, but it definitely understands the context that it's walking into mm. and that you give people that taste because they then want everything else. And I think... I think there's definitely a a sense that for something that's really lengthy to be able to intrigue people into into reading it is such a huge huge job. Oh yeah. And like I, I don't really like I do all the drone and sound social media or most of it and I just can't get my head around half of what you should and shouldn't do most of the time and I'm probably at an issue of whether I just embody myself or embody drone and sound and it's like because I'm not everyone that writes for it there's about 35 people that write for the site and you can't be all those people's opinions and tastes and i do have to bite my tongue when people write nine or ten out of ten reviews of records that i think are really average and unless they're transgressive records of, of course <laughs> in which case you know of course but, to, but we don't do average records so we're fine <laughs> i did to... see one uh, review recently where i was a bit like well should i email sean no no that's <laughs> should we give you a two out of ten no no it's like you guys are generally because obviously we release yeah. amazing albums but gen <laughs> generally speaking you're very very complimentary but there was one where it was actually a good review but yeah. it could have been in my view you know could have been a bit higher but look we'll talk about it separately <laughs> but i think also i think also so it's like when people justify their opinions it's like it's hard to argue with someone when they've actually put quite a well-rounded review together and it's actually when you pick I think one of the things going back to our frustrations why we started those 50 word reviews of a record they didn't really tell you That's anything a good point. they didn't really tell you anything about the writer they didn't really tell you anything about the artist it's true print was very limited like, and then suddenly you know with the internet there were no word limits for better or for worse mm. in some instances certainly for worse my, in some worse of in my case yeah, but yeah me too worse. actually I used to overwrite in retrospect you know like I used to just go on and on and on mm. I actually I also, but one of my favourite pieces I ever did which is something that is pretty inconceivable now for online I did a 10,000 word interview article with the Libertines which mm. was their first ever interview dissertation it, it was in retrospect <laughs> and bearing in mind I didn't go to university I kind of got a taste of what it might have been like um you know like so i don't know it's um yeah, it's funny to think about that <laughs> yeah i didn't go to uni either so i probably did the same that kind of <laughs> went to the we Dublin probably Castle. wrote more than people that yeah. went to university <laughs> I, I i definitely did like uh, you know I, I don't write as much as i would love to uh like anymore regrettably just because of various activities but there was a point where i added up everything i'd written for the site over a period of time and other publications and something like 1500 articles mm. and that was over just a number of years a small number of years i was like Gosh, how did I do that? Yeah. You know, uh, you sit down to write one today, and you're like the first fifteen words. I don't have the words. Delete anymore. them, and you're like start again. Yeah. Delete them. Well, back then you didn't care because you were so young, you didn't yeah. think about it. And but it also, didn't feel like anyone was reading. The idea of not well, in my case, no one was, so it's fine. <laughs> but the idea of not having stats, likes, 
people replying on Twitter, comment boxes. Like we were one of the first sites to have a comments box and we we thought it just extended the forum and it ended up just becoming basically drive-by pedantry. It wasn't like it was wasn't anything other than people being pedantic and mm. People were just picking holes and like they weren't engaging with the record, which was the whole point. But isn't that kind of what's happened even still? Like you know, whether you look at YouTube comments or mm. or other things, you know, like it's you know it's so misrepresentative because the people that tend to comment on things like that, they they tend to be the ones that are full of they're keyboard warriors. They're full of bile and resentment at the world, and and yet their comment comes above the credits, yeah, which mm. you have to click expand to see. So the person who produced the record, the person who wrote the song, <laughs> the, the record label that released it, it's all buried in favour of mm. a nasty comment or several hundred nasty comments and maybe mm. a couple of queen <laughs> and, first yeah <laughs> come to bogota <laughs> the, uh, all my favorite comments on the internet um but i guess we should probably move forward slightly because we were going to talk a bit about the future but mm. i think one of the things that's that strikes me about kind of what we've both done and i guess talking about the record labels part of it is a lot of people say oh you should diversify what you do and become a specialist in something else and i find it quite interesting how your shifts into other territory have been either using other people's platforms in a like Channel 4 TV show kind of way, mm -hmm. or starting something new like Love Live, and mm -hmm. the Rock Feedback concerts kind of became something that's a sister element and transgressive as a sister element. Um, so, like, I guess part of what I'm thinking is, like, for me, like, when I've done the record label, it was a Drown and Sound record label because it was like, and then we didn't write about bands because we thought it was a bit nepotistic we were putting out, which seemed a bit shooting ourselves in the foot. No, because, but that's fair. Like, yeah. whenever we covered uh, transgressive bands on Rock Feedback, it was only in two contexts. Either we were fans of them, and then, funnily enough, we ended up signing them, which was amazing. Or we would say, look, you've got to know about this band because it would be our duty to, you know, inform you that they're great. For, for the record, we're not going to critically review them or give them a star rating because... Mm they're attached to us. So as yeah. long as, you know, being upfront about the association. Yeah, I've we, had it we as well in radio where I've playlisted artists I'm looking after and I haven't played them but it's been actually on the playlist and I've actually can't sometimes refused to play it because it just, if, I thought if anyone finds out it just feels like I'm just really just using my, but then people said, well, why wouldn't you? <laughs> and it's like, yeah. well, kind of, but... I mean, John Peel and Steve Lamack uh, had labels, you know, like, um, I mean, obviously Steve Lamack was involved with uh, Deceptive and Elastica and John Peel had, a, yeah, Dandelion Records in the, and so, yeah, no, I think it's... Um, yeah, yeah, but even now it's like, I'm not picking fights or anything, but like there's definitely Radio 1 DJs now that have labels, they're imprints of majors that they they have sessions from the artists that they're working with and I find it a little bit strange um, that it's because I remember Lamac not really being allowed to, to champion acts after he'd signed them I think it was fine if they'd signed to a different label and I think in the case of Idlewild they'd signed to Food and EMI so it was kind mm. of yeah. it was fine and it was like us with Bat for Ashes it's like I put the first single out but we still write about her and most of our writers probably don't even know I put the single out yeah, it's, yeah. Like, it's not some oh, we, we have to be really nice. But I think isn't it so weird though, isn't it? Because radio is so important now, isn't it? To, to break bands, because there are so many bands out there that if you sign someone up, like you start something, label off or you're looking after bands because you're that passionate about it and you want it to happen, to then turn down radio support is kind of sabotage, isn't yeah. it, in a way? So it's a, it's a really tricky thing, I one, think, that one. I, I agree think with that. One of our worst situations was Mike Diver, the biggest youth movies fan in the world. We went through the press kit after we signed the band and hadn't realised that Mike had written almost every piece of press they had. We had all the Paul quotes, and it was like, oh, who was the person who wrote that at Rock Sound? Oh, Mike. Who was the person that wrote that for Crane? Oh, Mike. <laughs> That's actually and, hilarious. And then we went to send the album out. We were like, most people at the magazine hadn't really heard of the band. <laughs> and um, yeah, it was a bit of a 
like oh, they were such a good anyway you picked you picked Foles and I picked youth movies and, <laughs> and Andrew left left <laughs> Foles to uh, focus full time on youth movies well they're the, both uh, great bands the, uh, the parallel histories that we, <laughs> we could have had um so I guess from the diversification, I was I was thinking um, with what you're doing with Love Live and what you've done with video, it's something which Drowning Sounds always try to go into. And we've, to begin with, six, seven years ago when YouTube kind of first took off and it made sense, the cost of cameras, the cost of editing, even the cost of putting our logo on the front of a video, someone quoted me like 400 pounds. I was like, <laughs> wow, what, what, how does it cost that much just to put a logo on a video? Um and there was definitely a time when that was a lot more expensive and you guys were doing quite a lot then. Mm-hmm. Is that one of the things where maybe it's been precarious in your kind of kind of enthusiasm to, to, to <clears throat> walk into? Well, not, not that I know anything, I'm just kind no, of... No, <laughs> absolutely. I mean, it's again, it was naive, the starting of the filming side. Um, I just realised that a lot of the interviews that we were doing at that point were getting more and more valuable in terms of a documentary sense. And what I mean by the value is that, like these conversations were interesting and they were often from artists that were going somewhere. And I thought, well, it'd be great to film these, not just have the written word. Um, and so I was 18 and the club night was going, the website was going, it was the third thing in the rock feedback canon, as it were, that came out of, you know, the, the origins. And I met someone and we got on really well. And, you know, we were like, why don't we just start filming all this stuff? Um, And he knew I had all these various connections to up and coming bands and he could film and edit. And we both just basically went into it. Um, And I remember I was 18 and I basically, what money I'd saved up, which was I think about 400 pounds over six months of club nights and stuff, the leftover cash, I I just basically paid for a a plane ticket to go to New York with um, the other guy who managed to save up some cash. And we just went to New York. In retrospect, it's so weird. Like, I'd never been abroad (laughs) before, but I was just like, we're going over to New York with a camera and we've got a week, let's film some stuff. Like, (laughs) it's insane. But you know what we did in that week? We went... The week we were there was Broken Social Scene and Feist's first ever New York performance. So we filmed that and we interviewed them. I then had a friend, you're like this, Sean, you now manage Ed Harcourt. Ed Harcourt was headlining Barry Borum. Um, and my uh, my friend then at the time was Regina Spector, who became the first album on Transgressive. Um, I got her the support for Ed Harcourt in New York and I thought, what the hell, let's film it. Yeah. So we filmed that show and I filmed an interview with Regina. And then the final bit was, you, you guys may remember the new rock revolution. And um, <laughs> Jet were one of the bands. And they were playing their first show in New York. So we filmed Jet, um, Regina Spector, and Broke Social Scene. And we created these three mini, I don't know what they were, six-minute documentaries as well, mini episodes. So I came back to London with them. And I was like, what the hell are we going to do? And we edited them. And a very good friend of mine, and Nurture, uh, was, uh, I did work experience when I was 16 years old at XFEM, and uh, it was Zane Lowe. I, be- I befriended Zane, and like I said to Zane, look, I-, I went to New York, I did this. He goes, are you insane? What the hell? <laughs> you, you went to New York and just filmed random stuff? He goes, all right, let me have a look. He looks at me and goes, this is pretty good. And all it was was me sort of like kind of quite sober and naive, not knowing what I was doing, interviewing really wasted musicians in their dressing rooms and capturing the shows in a really chaotic way. Mm. Um and fortunately, he thought it was charming enough to take to uh, the then commissioner of MTV2, uh, Will McGillivray, who, funny enough, now works for us at Love Live. Um, and Will watched it, and he sort of like did the same reaction to Zane. He was just like, oh, okay, whatever. He watched it, he was like, huh, huh, do you want to do six episodes? I was like, what? Wow. Really? Hmm. And then he goes, actually, no, 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 wait. Because he saw my reaction, he was like, okay, I'll give you two pilots. He gave me, I think, £2,000. And he goes, okay, what do you want to do? I was like, okay, well, with £2,000, bearing in mind we had £500 for, um, 
All Rose Parties is happening in a couple of months. Why don't we go and do that? It was like, yeah, go ahead. So I went to All Rose Parties. We managed to blag time with Sonic Youth, Dizzy Rascal's first ever interview on, on camera. And Dizzy we, Rascal played ATP. It was his first show, was wow. ATP, pretty much, yeah. out of London. Drop that bob yeah. in. Wow. Yeah, it was, it was incredible. And um, so, yeah, everyone between Kim Gordon, Thurston Moore, uh, you know, that, and then Tortoise, and loads of amazing eyes. I went there and I came back with two episodes instead of one and I showed it to Will and Will was like, all right, you've got the series. And he gave me, well, I think it was like about eight grand to make six episodes, which for wow. me was like, gold mine! Yeah. Um, and we basically, between two of us and a few Did you do a Scrooge McDuck thing? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was literally that. I mean, in retrospect, what an idiot. I was totally ripped off, but I was a teenager and it was like £6,000. Wow, £8,000. Um, and then, yeah, we made six episodes somehow uh, and then Channel 4 saw them and then they gave us a bit more money for the next series. And then, so be it, that was it. And then Love Live came from that thing. So again, like everything that I've ever done, like there was never any money at the beginning. It was literally like, have an idea, have a go, see what happens. Mm. Um, and sorry, that was quite a long-winded way about no, it, no, but I, just thinking about it, I hadn't thought about it since it happened. Because at the time, you don't have any constructs about what you're doing. You just do it. And, and it's also, if you'd planned to do it, you would have not ended up getting started. You just would have planned. Yeah. Like that's one of the things like... People are like, oh, what was, what's your exit strategy for Drown and Sound? I'm like, I don't... I, I, <laughs> strategy? One, what one, do you mean, strategy? It's <laughs> like, I vaguely know how to play chess. I'm not sure, like, the, the idea of a game of chess is to... Go back to Weymouth. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I'm going to uh, sit and drink special beer on the, bre- on the beach like some of my friends do. But um, I've, um, I've worked alongside some of your crew at Love Live when we did sessions at XFM when I was doing the evening show. And I think it was actually a lifeline for the creatives behind the lens as well because they look like... You know, they're obviously so skilled in what they do. They've been really well trained and they just have been saved from corporate branded videos for the rest of their lives. They're actually doing something that they love and they can actually be creative with. So, yeah, yeah nice vibe. No, so, it's awesome. On that note, what was filming Nick Cave like? Just because we were. Uh, oh, he was wonderful. You're sitting in a room with uh, two Nick Cave fans, Nick Cave, massive fans. Nick Cave was wonderful. He, um, he took a lot of attention to detail as well. It was a live stream that we did from Los Angeles to launch his last record, Push the Skyway. Um, and uh, yeah, we basically set up a lot, a lot of pre-production. We worked very closely with his directors, um, who were excellent. Um, and yeah, we basically, yeah, we just turned up in LA. We had this big truck. We sort of like kind of filmed the sound check, and he came in. He was like, oh, "Let's have a look. Let's have a look at this." And uh, I don't know if anyone remembers the um, album cover uh, for his last album, yeah. but he, it's obviously his wife, his wife uh, yeah. fully, fully on show, as it were. And he basically goes, "Can you zoom in on that? Zoom in, zoom in on that detail." And we realised he was zooming in on that the specific detail that you don't zoom in on. And he's like. That's great. Can you just have that zooming in and out throughout the whole stream? And we were like, oh, you're the funniest man on the planet. Brilliant. And he and the rest of the bad seeds were incredible. They all came on. They loved. They were checking the audio with us. They, they were absolutely excited. And before the live stream started, we put it on Pitchfork, The Guardian, Rock Feedback, and a couple other sites. And, you know, there was this countdown. And Nick was just like, you could see him getting ready. And the first half of the show, which was the new album, was all black and white. And then as soon as they started playing old songs, it clicked into colour live, which was a really exciting moment. Mm. But So he's there, black and white, before the show. He, you can see he and the, him and the band getting ready. And then he just, as he's walking on stage, he turns around, looks at the camera, and he just does this really sort of Vegas point <laughs> into the lens. And then he walks on stage and becomes this terrifying overlord. Such a dude, isn't he? He's it? incredible. Like, yeah. I think, you know, he's, he's a master of the construct. And... You know, for someone that seems so maudlin and dark, he's obviously a lot more than that. And, you know, he was very, very charming to all our crew. A truly lovely gentleman. And Warren, mate. Genius. 
dude. Absolute <laughs> dude. Amazing. He's amazing. just, he is like, yeah, he's Jesus for me. Yeah. I still feel sorry for Nick Cave having to be in a band with Warren Ellis. He's the coolest man on earth. Yeah, he is. It must be a challenge I'm sure every Nick's... day. To he like... can wear like neon pink Hawaiian yeah. shirts and, and style it out completely. I'm sure no Nick... one can do that. I'm sure Nick's cool. <laughs> I'm sure he's cool, but I'm sure he must just sit there going, Warren, you're just effortless they're all cool like when they go on stage they're like this gang of just yeah they're very mm. they've very, lived lives yeah totally and did you have that moment when it was live when um since that moment in glastonbury that no one knows whether it was staged or not where the girl kind of gets lifted up to do you remember that to nick in the crowd did you see that in glastonbury no he, i think like, only showed one focuses one in on this on one girl it's a couple of years ago mm. and she was wearing a pristine white almost like a ghostly bridal gown do you remember this yeah and she was lifted up in the crowd and everyone thought it must be a you know stage because she was so clean mm. for glastonbury <laughs> but now Every live concert, girls are just waiting to be picked up, aren't they? It's just like, come on, Nick, come on, Nick. I, I always wear my white dresses at Nick gigs yeah. these days. Me too. In the hope, in the hope. Yeah, absolutely. So if we look forward to the to the future then, I mean, because you, you sent me an email earlier which had some crazy, weird, hologram, terrifying future ideas for, for technology and music media as well. I mean, where do you think that's going to go? Can anyone <laughs> answer that? I don't... Like, I honestly, I, I started just getting all those things out of my head, which I've written in a blog up on Medium. Um, I, I've sort of got a few theories of where we're headed, but I actually think a lot of it's going to return to kind of where we both started, that kind of one human being. Please God, not High Wickham. Yeah, no. <laughs> Please God. Yeah, uh, don't go up the junction. It took me a long time to get out of that place. <laughs> the, uh, but I think there's, there's that coming back to people are going to want human beings to, to sort of, they're enthused to say these are the few things that we like and what we think. I just think at the moment we're in a with this weird position where like Drowning Sound runs playlists on Spotify. Spotify raises millions and millions of investment. People spend £120 a year to use Spotify. And yet, as a curator, you're just kind of encouraged to gain more followers. And for what reason? Like we're encouraged to gain more followers on Facebook and then Facebook want to charge us to reach those followers on Facebook. And I think we're reaching an impasse for for publishers especially, of advertising is is shifting. Um, I think we can start, we're starting to do a lot more kind of native content is the technical term for basically an advertiser paying you to write a piece um, about something that they do, which is sometimes can be quite interesting. And as long as you make clear this piece was paid for, you've got a budget to pay a writer to do a piece that you maybe probably would have commissioned on that topic anyway. Um, we're not being asked to write kind of features about is this band a 10 out of 10 band? If we give you an extra 50 quid, can you make it a 10 out of 10 review? That isn't the case of what's happening there. And I think I think there's definitely the the kind of the where the money is. And it used to be you could just run a site and run adverts around it, design the site around the advertising, which is annoyingly like some of the biggest costs we ever had is redesigning just to fit advertising in. Um, the, all the functions we've wanted to build and things we've wanted to fix have been thrown out the window for if you don't do this, you're not going to have any advertising in six months' time because all the advertising's changed. Mm. Um, which is the really dull bit of doing the site. It's like, I wish I just sat there and I could go, right, I've got £500 this month to commission these two interviews, these six album reviews. Um, instead, we've got pretty much no budget for editorial. Um, we commission a few bits here and there, but most people write because they want to write. They use our site as their as their blog and their outlet, and we kind of aggregate really smart opinions, often very funny and irreverent, and often um, people that come up with things that they're writing about a band you never would have heard of. Like the other day, we just did our Lost Albums the Last 15 Years, and there's a record, literally the writer can't find anything. He just loved one song. 
And we had the band email us this morning going, we didn't know anyone cared or liked our band. Oh, nice. That's um, what it's about. And we're going to try and help them put their record out properly because we've, we've had like 20 people tweet us, which is more than like you'd expect in an article with 20 or 30 albums in to kind of go, where can I get this? This, this song is amazing that you've posted in here. And there's just like literally one song that some fans re-uploaded to SoundCloud. So that's kind of a... I'm kind of not talking about the future, I'm just talking about the present, really. But I think moving way further in the future, I'm not quite sure. I think it's going to be a lot less is more. I think nowness.com is quite a good example of what a kind of posting once a day kind of website's like. Like you were saying, it's like if you only put out six records a year, would it be wrong if your website only covered six acts a year? Mm. Yeah, I think it just it just needs to be essential. I think... I do think it's less is more, actually. I think that that goes for words as well, sadly. Mm. I think, um, you know, I, I love writing. I don't know if it's best placed for websites anymore. Um, you know, I think if you're going to write a long piece of work, you should probably format it in a more, you know, sort of complementary way. You know, everything's way more visual now. It's about beautiful graphics, beautiful illustrations, beautiful photography. That's one plus, actually, of the last couple of years is that, you know, whether it's Nowness or whatever, or, or Dazed or any of those people, you know, people are really up the game in terms of making these things way more engrossing as a visual thing. And what Pitchfork have done with their kind of equivalent of the cover story type approaches to, to feature artists, I think is really stunning. And, you know, I, I think that's a really nice approach, you know. Um, it can be a little style over substance, though. <laughs> well, but that's <laughs> there the same of, of any there magazine. Of, there's a lot of really nice looking features where the writing just isn't that great. And I think yeah. one of the biggest problems we've got is that young writers haven't got great editors that have got the time to dedicate to helping them become great writers. And, mm. and I think there's also some really great writers that end up churning out copy all day yeah. and increasingly becoming... And clickbait. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's the other challenge as well. well I mean, it's like, for instance, a couple of the guys that have written for you over the years, like, mm. they're some of the best writers you can possibly, like, suddenly forgot his name, Han Michael Han... Tom Hannon. Tom Hannon. He's amazing. Um, and, like, some of the things I've seen him write when he's put news stories and things up, and it's like, you've just literally written bit from a press release and put it on. I was thinking yesterday I just read this incredible thing from you and it's like can you not just do that <laughs> <laughs> yeah exactly the, uh, you're talking about the Sufjan Stevens review did he did an amazing he's done review. so many like his Prince reviews last year or, the, mm. or those hit and run gigs were incredible well this is the thing it's like you know we're, we're really lucky and I'm sure you feel that way it's like you become like a proud parent when you discover a great writer or and a lot of them become your best mates as well mm. but it's, it's all coming from the same place people dotted around the country or the world feeling displaced and wanting to kind of emote that's all it is it's yeah. not really rocket science um, I think yeah I mean the future's going to be interesting I mean to your earlier point about um, monetizing the commercial side of it you know that's where the value's kind of becoming now it's like you know you've got this buzz term of influencers you know and that's all to do with people that have their own audience that they've created through sharing opinions through sharing thoughts through just sharing what they're listening to or, or talking about and you know if you build enough of those people suddenly there is a monetary value attached to that because what people always want is to buy credibility and to buy audience so if you have both you have credibility and an audience, you've suddenly got a premium, really, that's better than clicking on an advert. Mm. So the irony is, Sean, actually, you know, you've got a pretty decent, you know, like kind of social following and all that stuff. You know, there is value in that and people are cynically buying into that, you know. Yeah. It's, it's, a, it's a bypass and a gate crash to it. I think that the only danger of that is people keeping their integrity and not just going, hey, I've got 100,000 Instagram followers and then doing things about being a 
extremely upfront about it. I think we're going into a weird, like, when product placement was acceptable until all the Ofcom legislation came in, we're almost entering a new phase of that, but for, for digital, you know, as long as people are clear about the deals they're doing, I don't mind it. But mm. I have a feeling there's going to be a lot of dodgy stuff over the next couple of years. But it's also when people become that, the kind of the brand, they start to drink their own Kool-Aid. Oh, yeah. And they don't realise they're pissing in a bottle and drinking it. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, there is yeah. definitely a point of no return with, the you indivi- yourself, individual yeah. as the brand. I think one of the I think one of the nice things about having Drowning Sound as a platform is it's there's always someone to balance and balance me out, and there's always other opinions. There's thousands of people on the forums that if we post a review that's completely off piece, they will say in seconds. That's great. The mm. like you just have to look at the comments on the enemy relaunch, just the comments on their Instagram about who's on the cover. You're just sitting there going, if you scan back, like six months ago it was like oh can't wait to read this tomorrow and comments like that and now it's just like wow this is like your audience and your fans that you've built up well there's falls on the cover next week so all's not lost (laughs) (laughs) it is one of those things though I mean I've it's the digital world is so important isn't it to the music industry now and especially people love to see reaction and actually written personal stuff from the artists and bands themselves completely and some are really good at it some aren't I've seen people just stop you know, artists that are just like, I don't know what to say because it's not in their character to... So I think some of them feel like a bit of a used car salesman <laughs> just going, oh, you can get this here, or I played here, you can do that. And as much as you say to them, yeah, but it's really important you do it, if it doesn't feel genuine and stuff, it comes across as not genuine as well. So it's a really tricky balancing act isn't it, between management, label, mm. artists to, to find the one thing that really suits that particular thing. And I think that's why Instagram is quite a big hit in that sense because you don't have to say too much. You can just capture something in quite a creative way maybe I, I agree know. yeah I think that's true I mean I've taken a photo of a Liars album with a wall running through it I don't know if that was technically uh, <laughs> advertorial in exchange for a free record but that's about <laughs> as far as I've got on Instagram uh, <laughs> Instagram uh, product placement I'm I, I'm really unprofessional with social media I just post my life and lots of gigs I go to and lots of things that I see It's it's not really a kind of Okay, let's use this, you know, and I could probably make more of that. You know, I'm I'm in a very fortunate, privileged position to see a lot of things that people would love to have access to, but part of me is a but bit. But you like, wouldn't get access to them if you did leak that information. Like one of the things that yeah, that's a good me, point. one of the things that annoys me the most is when they're like, Oh, you're a journalist, don't tell anyone or don't run a news story about this. It's like, well, one, we haven't run news for seven years. So I'm not <laughs> gonna write a news story about something which probably isn't really news to anyone. And also it's like I'm a human being. I'm not just a tabloid journalist. And I think actually one of the worst things I think about journalism and moving forwards is there does need to be a bit of a cleansing. I think there does need to be a code of conduct. I think Mm. there needs to almost be an NUJ membership for online sites, and Mm. um, which I guess kind of started to make me think about some of the things that um, you wish you hadn't done over the last 15 years, which I don't want to be negative, but things that... Like, for instance, we ran a news story once, which we thought was true. We read it on three sources that were all kind of credible sources. That Angus Young from ACDC had died. And oh, gosh, I remember that. We ran it. That think, went everywhere. Yeah, and because we ran it, we then became the source that everyone else used. And I'm just going to open my beer right now because... Because <laughs> the stress the, is the, coming uh, the back. Hump, the uh, darkness of this tale. Oh, my goodness. You get broadcasting so much. It's brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, theatre of the mind painting the picture. The, uh, but there's, there's, definitely, there's definitely a sense of, like, a few things like that we've done over the years. Like, there was another thing where we took a quote from a Godspeed interview and turned it into a big headline. 
because there's no lyrics in Godspeed songs, you don't know what they're about. And he was like, oh, this record's kind of about the war. And I can't remember the exact quote, but it was quite a like, whoa. And it was like, so we blew it up into the quote to the headline. And obviously he took exception to being quite out of context. And it was like within the context, like the context was that's the headline, now read the feature. Um, and again, I, we probably should have adjusted and adapted and changed and probably thought about the implications of that. But it was at a time when we just wanted, like, Godspeed weren't, they're not, they're still not the biggest band in the world and they probably should be. <laughs> I um, agree. In and a fair to, world. And to get people to read a feature about them, you do have to use some of, sadly, the bits of the internet that that intrigue people and in, kind of incite them into reading something. And I, I like, there's been a few things like that. And I was just wondering whether there's been things like that for you guys where you've sort of thought, well, well, if we hadn't done that or if we hadn't invested in that or if we hadn't plowed kind of head I mean, first into the future? Yeah, so it's a, it's a really good question. I mean, obviously there are things that you wouldn't do again because in retrospect it was just terrible in terms of business sense or or whatever. Um, but equally as well though, like I don't know if it's delusion or complete blind optimism. Like, you know, everything that you do forms what you do in the future. You know, you can't... Um, you can't sort of over-consider things and, you know, as you say, have a paralysis from planning. Sometimes you just have to do and think afterwards. Because um, sometimes, I was chatting to a friend actually yesterday where we were saying, you know, life is two doors really when it comes to decision making and you go left or right and sometimes you can have a run where you're going through the right door continually and it's like, yeah! And, and it feels like you're in a fun house with lots of doors. Yeah, exactly. There's two twins. Yeah, and then, <laughs> One, two. <laughs> and there's gunge everywhere. Um, but then sometimes you go through a door and like, Look, there's no such thing in my view as a bad decision. You know, you you, you know, and what I mean by that to qualify that because obviously that's not true in a if you take that out of context. But what I mean is that like, if you've got a difficult situation and there's pros and cons to both, you know, sometimes you just have to go. You know what, this one will do. And you know, I look back at sometimes I'm like, oh gosh, that was really bad, and oh god, that really dented the bank account. I remember mm. one time where you know Transgressor was going through a really tough time and we didn't have any money in the bank and. We just spent so much cash on like the money that we'd made from bands that were doing well. We were signing loads of new stuff, and we kind of were being unrealistic in retrospect. And I remember Tim and I were like, "Oh God, what are we going to do?" And we personally just took out loads of money and put it on another record, which was in retrospect nuts. And the put it re- on black, <laughs> yeah, exactly, <laughs> yeah. yeah. But the record didn't end up doing amazingly, and we we never got that money back. Yeah. And and um, do I regret it? Weirdly, not. I love mm. the record that we made and, you know, I guess I, I'm not really answering this coherently because I guess what I'm trying to say is that from a business level, there are things we shouldn't have done. But from a creative and you only live once perspective, what the hell? You know, yeah. I think I think the one great thing about having partners and people you work with every day that you love is that you're in it together. And I, I actually like going, going back to that, I think one of the worst things that happens to some people is having success too early. Like, and I think you can see it with a lot of bands when they just implode after two or three albums. Or even one album. Yeah. The, <laughs> uh, like, for me, it was like Martha Wainwright sold quite a lot of records. Um, I think we did nearly 80,000. And, like, that gave us the money to then to put a lot of other records out. And I wouldn't, for a second, take back putting Yanni Forever's records out, which I think is the correct way to pronounce it after <laughs> going through my uh, head of the various different ways that people pronounce it, Jenny Forever and various other ways. Um And, I and like, they weren't my My Buddy Valentine that, like, bankrupt the label when I was, like probably because I'd read the creation story and knew not to do that. But it was like I wouldn't take back for a second putting that record out and bring them over to do shows. And like, they talked with Isabel Campbell. And like for them, it was like the greatest thing they'd ever done. For us, it was like maybe not the most 
kind of cost efficient thing we've ever done. I think that's but like the, I never yeah. really looked at it thinking was if we didn't have the money we wouldn't have done it. But having that level of kind of unexpected success, I think it was. It was like we expected the Martha record to sell quite well, but we didn't expect to do what it did. Mm. The fact the next record didn't was the reason the record label doesn't exist anymore. But, but that's like, exactly it. I think you know it's a very complex thing. You know, uh, we we've become accustomed to sort of having very humble, healthy expectations without limiting the potential success of any artist we sign. We aim for the skies every single time with every artist we sign, and have really huge belief in every artist we work with. But we try and resource things, you know, in their interest as well as ours, where you don't go mad too soon because that's that's the major label way of working where you spend everything on single one, single two. Oh, this is a bit stressful. Don't release the album. You yeah. know, every album yeah. we've ever signed, we have released. And in some instances, it's almost bankrupted us. In some instances, it's been the best thing we could have ever done. And mm. you don't know at the time. You just have to follow your heart and keep naive. You know, preserve that naivety because... You never know what's going to happen. Preserve my <laughs> totally. records should have been my record label. <laughs> no, it's Damn a good it. name. It's a good name. <laughs> the uh, so in fact, talking of two word things, in your 15th anniversary post, you talked about being cautiously created, cautiously curated. To, to, <laughs> I was going to say, yeah, uh -huh. uh, I, I got some of the syllables out, but not most of the words. <laughs> was that in context? Um, which what was that in context to? Just in terms of what you published, you talked about being cautiously curated as a website, and I wondered if that principle going forward is something that other websites need to think a lot more about like i my my main bugbear is that if you champion everything like everything's amazing yeah then nothing is well that's and... a, that's a good point yeah i think we've always been and this goes for transgressive as well it's like we have to believe in everything we we put out and you know i, I guess the only whitewash with that is that we don't release music we think is shit and we yeah. don't write about music that we think shit you know so everything we do is like a badge of this is good, you know. Some of that's subjective, some of it obviously objective, because we know the we know what's going on. But <laughs> um, no, I I think um, cautiously creative relates to we think about what we do, you know. But once it's considered and it's gone through that that process and it's out there in the world, then you'll see lots of enthusiasm. You'll see a lot of passion for this brilliant stuff we're lucky to work with. I think ultimately people are looking for. I think wherever they look, it's kind of it's it's been quite sort of bland it's been watered down a lot when you see just like you say press releases just regurgitated on site after site after site after site and sort of bands quite sonically similar just like playlisting on certain kind of brands around the place i think people still really do want to read personal accounts really well researched accounts listen to something that really challenges them i still think it's out there and i just really hope that the charts kind of begin to embody that and people begin to take a few more risks. Because so, I think that is that is possibly the turning point in the whole kind of landscape of the UK music scene at the moment. I just want people to take a few more risks because I think sometimes people play too safe and trends just sort of dilute into nothing and then they're forgotten. I'll tell you what I want to see more of related to that point, Danielle, is I want to see more artists that have real ambition to make things better you know and what i mean by that is there's a lot to talk about right now politically socially whatever and i'm starting to see it a bit i'd love to see it more but like there's definitely a bit of a timid sort of oh i want to impress the cool blogs vibe going on with certain musicians mm. that should not be part of your architecture you should only be considerate of like how meaningful what i'm creating can be you know how far can i push this how, and then when you perform it how can i blow people's minds but also a lot of that comes back to one of the things you said in your piece was about interviewing characters and i think that's so important like anyone can make a record sound good and I think people that care more about their production than their lyrics have got something quite wrong. But someone who doesn't think about what they're going to say in an interview and you ask them quite a, 
like simple question and they, they've never really thought about the answer. You that see. happens a lot. But now. also, a lot of that comes down to bad journalism. Mm. Like, they're not being asked that question before. It's true. The amount of times I've interviewed people about their records, and there's something clearly in the concept of the record. Like, I asked St. Vincent about the kind of sex mask thing that was on the cover of her record because it was quite a like striking cover to an album. <laughs> clearly put together as an image about someone kind of suffocating in a mask and like she was like oh no one's asked me about the cover I haven't what? really thought about it and I was like <laughs> haven't thought about it yeah she wow. was like she was like I haven't thought about it for, since I decided on it and it's like the record had mm. been out for three months I was yeah. like what it's kind of ironic, though, bearing in mind you and I are kind of, you know, amateurs done good sort of thing in that respect or, or aiming to do good that, you know, we think about these things now and we didn't have the formal training to be journalists or whatever. But those questions aren't asked. That is scary. You know, like people should be inquiring both from an artistic standpoint, but then also from a kind of artistic response standpoint. So, yeah, I, I, I really want people to speak out more intelligently and passionately I think people are very scared of sharing their opinion at the moment mm. um, and and if they are putting their opinions out there's often a kind of conceit to it they're trying to engineer a type of media response that will perpetuate their brand as opposed to improve society Absolutely. Yeah, that, that timing of an opinion coming out just as the week before your album came out that's, that's yeah, surprising that's irritating the, uh, <laughs> but you must have been thinking these things and building up to this for six months which obviously there's a time when people can pay attention to you which is when your album's coming out um, there's a lot of musicians that have a hell of a lot to say that are not big enough to have that platform to say mm. it. And I think there's a lot of young bands as well that I, I love them to bits. I mean, you know, we're always working with brand new artists, you know, um, and some of them irritate me a bit because, uh, you know, you'll read an interview and you just feel like you haven't thought about anything. You know, you're just literally in your own world. You know, it's all about you kind of being hedonistic and hanging out with your, your band. And don't get me wrong, that's lovely. That's a wonderful thing. But, you know... I just kind of feel like it's very self-centered. It's not like reflective of what's going on externally. And all my favorite artists manage to have a combination of the two. They have the inner self and they have a view on the outside world and they have a sensitivity towards it. And, you know, it'd be lovely to see a bit more of a holistic impression. Mm. But so, then there's also some amazing characters still that I get, you know, the chat I'm sure you guys do as well to interview, like people like Nicky Wire that you speak to and you're just like, oh my God, it's such a dream, you know. Stuart Braithwaite that we had on the last podcast as well that are so gracious with their, and generous with their time and they're kind of, they've told the stories probably over and over again, but it's the interviewer's job to try and do something they haven't spoken about before because it's just so boring. It's so <laughs> boring for everyone. Yeah. Listening, asking the questions and answering them, it's too boring. So you just need, as you say, people with a bit more, more balls, Yes, essentially. <laughs> I guess one of the things like we've probably experienced being on the other side of the fence, um, like with, with management and with putting records out, I'm often like, you should say this in the interview, I've heard you say it, and they're like, oh, I didn't think that I could bring that in and that's relevant to, to what we're talking about. Like, it was mm. with the first show we did with Metric. Um, I worked with them, but they didn't need any any input from me when I was their record company to kind of say this is kind of what you're saying. It's like you're you're already one of the bands that's got more to say than most people, um, and it's just a case of drawing that out. And then you sit there and you watch someone ask a question. Oh, so so where did you? Why did you choose the name? <laughs> and I'm like, what? <laughs> this is this is your first question in an interview with a band that's got their fourth record out or something. And you're sitting there going. This doesn't make any sense whatsoever. So I guess flipping this back around, like what would be your tips for the for the fifteen year old you sitting in a bedroom in High Wycombe that wants to start a website? Oh my goodness! Um, I think tips for anyone that wants to wants to get started is I, I really believe that people don't start excellent. I really don't believe that, and you know, people are lucky if they ever touch it. You know, at any point in their lives, um, I think just start. 
and develop and get good at whether you're an artist, get good at writing songs, think about what your message is, think about what your contribution to the artistic canon is um, and find like-minded souls to build a community around it and people will find you, whether it's me or other people will, f- will find you. It's that like scorch your own piece of earth, isn't it? Totally. Like, find uh, it and... Yeah, absolutely. And then from a kind of, from a media perspective, be honest, have a perspective, have a, have something to offer. Um, don't take away from what's going on, you know, contribute again. You know, I think it's really important that people always think about what their role is in society and try their best to add to it and not detract and be dismissive. And, you know, like I, I, you know, I think one thing I was speaking to a friend about the other day um, is that you know, like I've never really had that many business plans what I've done, you know, at all. Probably to a lot of detriment, as we were talking about a minute ago. <laughs> but, um, but like the thing is, is that you know, if you have an impetus and a love of something, and you work really hard, and you try and support other people good things will happen. Good it's that karma, simple. Man. Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm, I, yeah, I, I believe that. I really do. I, I, that's been my life thus far. And like, the more I keep putting out into things, the more I keep trying to give them stuff, you know, great things keep happening. And I'm mm. extremely grateful every day for it, you know. And also, uh, uh, the other thing I will say is, have fun. Absolutely enjoy it. No one wants to sort of like stand at the back of a half-empty bar fly or small venue, toilet circuit venue around the country and be moaning about how difficult things are. Like, Music and art are wonderful, important, vital things for culture and society and entertainment. Like, be thrilled to be a part of it. Mm. You know, be thrilled to be part of that exchange. Go stand on the barrier would be my advice <laughs> my younger self. Oh, uh, one other piece of advice. Don't stand too close to speakers. I yeah. got tinnitus yes. at a really young age. Actually, that's a really good point. Please wear earplugs. Yeah, that's the other thing. Definitely. <laughs> um, I think as well, it's a, it brings us right back full circle actually to the beginning, which is a great way to end a podcast, isn't it? Um, and it's all about the patience and stuff. And lots of people see these success stories, which they think are overnight. And they're so not. I mean, you guys, 15 years on, me too. I I started off having to do terrible local radio, real partridge stuff, awful, like from country fairs and stuff. And you just, (laughs) like you say, work your way up, you enjoy it. You build a reputation, you start doing what you like, and you invest time in it. Um, But nothing's really that overnight. People have been in other bands, they've been in 10 other bands, you know, they've been writing for years and years. You know, their parents keep saying to them, when are you going to get a proper job, son? You know, and they're fighting back. So oh, it's I, that's, that only patience. stopped for me in like 2006. I still get asked that question. Job. No, not really. The, uh, <laughs> I'm really lucky. It took until I had a column in the Sunday Times for my, for my family to stop asking me when I was going to get a real job. <laughs> and it was like, because it was something they'd heard of. Yeah. They, like, they didn't, it was like the amount of bands, like we'd interviewed like so many of like the biggest bands in the world. They're like, oh, when are you going to get It's like, you don't seem to understand. That, you need to start like, wearing a tie. Yeah. The... Uh, <laughs> When are you going to buy a house? Like, <laughs> no when one is, will lend when against the, this. <laughs> when is the world going to going to become a sensible space? Yeah. So to sum up, we've done it. We've both done a decade and a half sentence as editing <laughs> websites, running record companies, you putting on a lot of gigs, running a TV channel in Love Live. Um, I think there was probably other things between us we've done. Like I must have baked at least one cake in that time. I um, need to cook more. That's for sure. Read more. Uh, I need to read more as well. There's so much stuff I need to do. The, uh, remember to charge your phone more often. Yeah, it always blows. Yeah. The uh, so so what do we generally think the uh, next fifteen years? If we could sum up what we hope for it, the uh, is there is there currently? I'm guessing you've got some new acts. You hope maybe bigger things going to happen. You're about to launch a new festival. 
the uh, what what does what does Toby do next? Yeah, we're doing festivals, which is quite fun. We've got uh, an event which is sold out. We've got Hot Chip and Foles headlining uh, by the Sea Festival in Margate. What a waste of marketing time this is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it actually is. Yeah, yeah it's, it's gone. Sorry, sorry, everyone. Yeah. Um, uh, but we'll do, we'll do it again next yeah. summer, though. So uh, if there's any other awesome bands, summer you're doing it in November. Uh, yeah, sorry. Yeah, that's a good point. Actually, yeah, we'll be doing it October, November again. It might year. be an Indian summer though. Summer seems like it wants to cling on this year. I mean, yeah, weather's all over the place, isn't it? Um, but yeah, no, like, um, I, yeah, next year we've got lots of new artists. Um, we've got returns coming as well from a lot of our bands like Songhoi Blues, Gengar. Always, we're we're wanting to do second albums quicker. That's one of our New Year's resolutions. So hopefully, second albums from all of them. Also, debut albums from a lot of bands we're really excited about, like Blind Evan. But can we just check, Danielle, can you pronounce uh, Toby's new signing he's going to see tonight? Blind Evan, I've seen them. I went to the studio party, they're very good. I'm glad you can say it. <laughs> it's Blind Evan, isn't it? That's what I've been saying on the yeah. radio. It's, it, it's mostly there, it's Blind Evan. Oh, Blind Evan. You're going to have to write that underneath for a few yeah. people. I know, I know. It's a nightmare, isn't it? I don't think even they pronounce it properly, actually. But uh, this is good. This, <laughs> that's, this, a, that's, that's a shame. <laughs> If only one thing, that that quote is going to end up on SoundCloud and how to pronounce their name properly. I mean, you know what? That, that's it. It's a how-to guide. Yeah. We've, we've created a yeah. how-to guide. How on trend with modern media. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but yeah, like, you know, more great records and, you know, uh, like, yeah, more shows. I mean, we just, every year we try and, like, make things better. Every year we try and surprise ourselves with the artists we work with and the things we do. And, you know, I think I think it's all about sustaining all the wonderful things we've been lucky to be a part of. And, you know, we haven't dropped anything over the years, you know, like whether that's like the website function, the uh, you know, the label, the publishing, the management, the, the filming. They've just all sort of like been lucky to get keep growing. And so we just hope we can keep uh, keep that energy happening, really, and um, keep unearthing amazing people that we want to, yeah, change people's lives with. How would people get their music to you if they were listening to this and thinking, I'd quite like Toby to hear this? Is it um, literally just send in like, yeah. like the old days? You yeah, know? Totally, send, send it to us, tweet us, all that sort of stuff. You know, um, we try and get through everything. It's really hard. There's so much. I, I regret the fact we can't get back to everyone. Like, it really annoys me. It's it's just unfortunately impossible. We don't have enough people to, mm. to do that. And we'd be doing a disservice to the artists that we do sign if we spent most of the time doing admin and responding to everyone, which is... It'd be a, like going on, out on dates while being married, wouldn't it? <laughs> um, yeah, it's, it kind of does feel a bit like having loads of relationships when you're... Right. Like, for example, we've got two shows tonight. We've got Blind Avon and Gengar, both playing separate shows in London. So, yeah, I feel I feel naughty. I'm not going to see Gengar tonight. Uh, but Tim and Leela are, and they're not going to see Blind Avon. It's like, it's, it is a bit naughty. Um, but you know what? Like, love them all. And, yeah, I just feel lucky to be doing this. I can't nice believe it. Nice problem to have, isn't it? I, can, I just can't yeah. believe this. Yeah, it's, it's nice to think about 15 years. That's the one good thing about anniversaries is a moment to pause look back and go, cool, keep going. Yeah. <laughs> and on that note, thank you, Toby. <laughs> Thanks, do, not, guys. do not laugh your beer up your nose. <laughs> and, we will, uh, no we, and we will head off into the night. Let's do oh, it. Well. Um, coming up on the next episode, we have no idea what the next title is going to <laughs> no, be. No, but you can subscribe. It is free. Yeah, you can subscribe on iTunes. You can subscribe on... There was three other Android platforms I've added it to that I cannot remember the names of. Um, there's an RSS feed if you go to drowningsound.com and we will probably chop up a few bits of this interview to put onto Spotify in amongst the playlist for songs that Toby's released and uh, it will probably, if, if we get it right, open with Spanish Sahara. How's that? That's perfect. Yeah, nice. And on that note, thank you for listening. I'm going to walk into a world of future rust and future dust. Bye.